John thirteen thirty one to thirty five. Love one another. Verse thirty one. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I say to you also, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are grateful for your holy word. We pray that you'll sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Teach us to glorify you. Teach us to love one another. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, in this passage, we've come to a turning point in the book of John, a major turning point because Judas Iscariot has left the supper. It says so in verses 30 and 31. He went out immediately in verse 30 and verse 31, when therefore he had gone out. Now in our narrative from John 13, 31 through chapter 17, 17, 26, 13, 31 to 17, 26, we have what's known as the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse when Christ taught the 11 disciples, especially he taught them about these truths before his imminent arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. He is teaching the 11 without Judas Iscariot. Yes, Judas will show up again later. This is likely the Last Supper on the Wednesday and no later than the Thursday before the Friday crucifixion. On the Friday or Friday crucifixion, that's when the Passover is celebrated and they eat that Passover meal. From Matthew 26, we learn of that. But at this point, Judas has gone and Jesus is teaching his own 11 saved, truly elect salvation disciples. These are the ones he is teaching. And he's teaching them two main truths. Two main truths with one intermediate truth between them in verse 33. The first main truth is in verses 31 to 32 that his crucifixion, the cross of Christ, his death, his atoning death, his substitutionary death is for the glory of God. And the glory of God is what should be their focus. The cross, the death of Christ, The substitutionary death of Christ is for the glory of God and the glory of God should be their focus. If it was the focus of Christ until he died, it should be their focus too. To glorify Christ and thereby glorify God the Father forever and ever through the cross. That's in 31 to 32. In 33, we have this intermediate issue and that is that Christ is going away. He's going to go away. He's going to go away in the literal sense immediately in that he's about to die. 
And then he will rise and appear to them for 40 days. But after the 40 days of appearance, showing many convincing proofs that he had risen from the dead, he will ascend into heaven and then he will be gone from the earth permanently during the lifespan of the apostles. He'll be gone in that way. So when we consider the absence of Christ in terms of his personal presence, his fleshly, earthly presence among us, when we consider that, what should be on our mind? Which is the next major truth he wants to leave with them. That's in 34 to 35. That is, to love one another. Meantime, what should they be about? Loving one another, thereby proving that they love God. And if they love God in this way, they glorify God also. These two truths of Scripture, the glory of God and the love of God, are intertwined. They are bound up together. If we love one another, we love God. If we love God, we glorify God. They're all interrelated truths of Scripture. These he will reiterate from 1331 to 1726. He's going to show this truth or these truths from 1331 and, and through chapter 17. This is his focus to teach them these truths. Let's see it here in summary fashion today. First, 31 and 32. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. The glory of God is the focus here. And firstly, it is when he says the Son of Man is glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. He uses this word now. Verse 32, he says immediately. In chapter 12, verse 23, 12, 23, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In 13, verse 1, it says, Jesus, knowing that his hour, that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father. His hour had come. 17, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The hour is now. And by that he means the time is now. It is near, very near. It's going to be within a couple of days. Within a couple of days, within two days, he will be crucified. He will be put to death. That is what he means here. In terms of glory, he means his death. Let's see further confirmation of this in two more places in John. John 18, 28. John 18, 28 to 32. John 18, 28 to 32. 1828, they led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the, into the praetorium 
And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate therefore went out to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. That the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. In 12, 32 and 33, he said he was going to be lifted up from the earth. Lifted up from the earth means he was going to be crucified and his crucifixion, the cross, would glorify God. Well, here he will die by crucifixion because the Romans and Pilate crucify criminals. The Jews don't crucify criminals. They do impale them on crosses or on wood, but usually they first stone them and then impale them. They usually stone them. And the Jews say here, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. If we had permission, we would have stoned him to death. But we can't stone him because we're under you, Pilate. So we give the authority to you. You do what you want. So if Pilate does it his way, he's going to crucify him. But is this glorification? John 21. John 21, 18 and 19. John 21, 18 and 19. Here, Christ is telling Peter how he's going to die and it's going to be an unpleasant death. And see here what it is called by John the Apostle. Verse 18, 21, 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. This is Christ in verse 18 to Simon Peter, the apostle, telling Simon Peter that when he grows old, he's going to have his hands stretched out. Well, why hands stretched out? Because he would be impaled on a cross. He would be tortured and then put on a cross, his, having his hands stretched out just like Christ's hands were stretched out on the cross. Someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Peter doesn't want to be crucified. Nobody wants to be crucified, right? We all want to die a natural, peaceful death. But here he's going to be crucified because someone's going to force him into that kind of ignoble, dishonorable death. But though it is dishonorable in the eyes of men, what's God going to do with it? Verse 19. It says, but this he said, John is explaining. Now this he said, Christ said, signifying by what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. That death, though it's shameful in the eyes of the world, it's for the glory of God. You see what 
he's saying God does that which is shameful in the eyes of men to glorify himself. So we should boast in what God boasts. We should glorify God that way. Further, John 13, 31 to 32, we see here an inner relationship between the Father and the Son. When the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. And when the Father is glorified, He shares His glory with the Son. This glory is interchangeable glory. That first, we must honor the Son or glorify the Son, the Son of God. And when we do so, God the Father is glorified. If we don't glorify the Son of God, then God the Father will not be glorified, no matter what we say. If we dishonor or not give glory to Christ where it should be, then we don't glorify God the Father. The two go together. That's the meaning of 31 to 32. The Father and the Son work together to glorify the Son in order to glorify the Father. If we don't glorify the Son, we do not glorify God the Father. They work together. Let's see here how the two are interchangeable in terms of the glory and this glory being in the cross. First, in the book of John, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 1. John 17, 1. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Which means, glorify your Son by my death on the cross, that the Son may glorify you. You will be glorified when I die on the cross. Why? For the sins of the people. To bring reconciliation. To purchase a bride for Christ. To have God's mercy displayed in the redemption of His people. This is the kind of glory that will happen. And it will redound to God the Father. Verse 4. 17, 4 and 5. 17, 4 and 5. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He says he has accomplished glorifying God in verse 4. We know he's speaking like a prophet who speaks in the past tense, Although, technically speaking, every single aspect has not yet been accomplished. Remember, verse 12 is similar to that. While I was with them, 1712, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He says, I guarded them, the eleven, none of them perished, but the son of perdition, that is Judas. But Judas has not 
ultimately and finally perished. He's, he is perishing, but he has not finally perished. But Jesus speaks of both his guarding and the perishing as being past. He's saying it because he's saying it according to God's decree. God has certainly already accomplished it. So then, back to verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on the earth. But he's still on the earth. He hasn't finished. The death hasn't happened. The resurrection hasn't happened. The ascension has not happened. None of this has happened. Yet he has spoken of it as, as having been accomplished. But when this is accomplished, notice in 5, this glory, he says, glorify me together with yourself, Father, The glory that the Son has is with the Father. They share it. It's interchangeable and and reciprocal in that when we glorify the Son, we glorify the Father. Furthermore, he's saying, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Here, that glory that Christ had with the Father before the foundation of the world, that he was sharing with the Father before the foundation of the world, will continue after His ascension and for all eternity with the Father. Glory that no one else experiences except the Son with the Father. 17.10 And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Everything that has happened... Everything in the world up to that point, in his ministry up to that point, and even after that point, is what? I have been glorified in them. Because these things belong to the Father and the Son, and they work together for Christ to be glorified in them. 22, 17:22, And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Now this glory that the Father and the Son have, they share this with us so that there might be unity. This unity is practiced or displayed when we love one another. Verse 24, 1724. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Look at the connection here between glory and love, like we see in John 13. This connection between glory and love. That we be with Christ where Christ is. That's his prayer in 24. And when we are with Christ, we are going to see His glory. We're going to see His glory and share His glory there. And the love that the Father and the Son have, we are going to experience that because we will be in their presence. This kind of love that they had before the foundation of the world. In the future, therefore... The glory of God and the love of God that have been granted to us 
we are going to share in that in the world to come. The glory of God and the love of God in the world to come. Now the cross, that it is centered on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1:18. It's 118 to 2 verse 5. 118 to 25. We'll read excerpts from this section. First Corinthians 1:18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross is foolishness to Jews and Greeks, to Jews and Gentiles. They want miracles They want wisdom. They want earthly things. They don't want heavenly things. But the cross is the way to heaven. And so they despise and shame the cross when actually it's the wisdom of God and the power of God. They boast in their wisdom. They boast in other things. But in whom should we boast? 31. 1 Corinthians 1.31 Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we're going to boast, we must boast in the Lord. But what about the Lord? What is it about the Lord that we should boast? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's where the glory is. Not human wisdom, not human speech, not human intelligence, not human power, not human riches, nothing like that. It is the cross of Christ. The Apostle Paul refused to diminish, to mitigate the preaching of the cross of Christ because that's where boasting is, that's where the glory of God is, that's where salvation is. The moment we diminish it, set it aside, put something else in its place, and many people do. Some people put the resurrection in the place of the cross. They do so. They say, well, we don't preach the cross, we preach the resurrection. 
Because Jesus rose from the dead. Well, of course Jesus rose from the dead. No one's denying that. The resurrection has its place, but your malicious intent is to diminish the cross because you don't want to preach against sin and death and eternal death. That's where the problem is because you don't want to preach against sin. You want to boast in positive and pleasant, happy things. You don't want to boast in the crucifixion where the glory of God resides. Galatians 6, Galatians 6, 11. Galatians 6, 11. We'll read 11 to 16. Galatians 6, 11. See, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, that is, upon the Israel of God. They want to boast in men. They want to boast in their physical change of circumcision. They want to boast in a ritual. They want to boast in their works, what they have done, or what sins they haven't committed. That's where they want to boast. But Paul says, But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only place where we should boast, where our glory should be, the cross of Christ. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for our sins. That's where the glory of God is. If God is glorified that way, then we should preach that way. We should live that way, focused on the cross of Christ. If we don't do it, we're not glorifying God, no matter what we say. We're not glorifying God. We're not glorifying His Son. We are bringing shame to the cross and shame to God the Father. Verse 33. 13, John 13, 33. Having said this, among the disciples, if they are understanding or to the extent that they understand this, it may arise, uh, arouse anxiety. Grief among them. And there are points in their life during this period which, in which they did understand and at other times which, in which they did not understand. Sometimes they understand, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they understand briefly and a ray of light shines forth. In this case, he's telling them and reminding them explicitly that he is going away, but not to be disheartened. So he says in 33, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I say to you also. First he calls them little children. Of course, in this context, he loves them. And this word little children is meant to be a term of endearment. 
It's a term of affection. Little children. He's not denigrating them. He is expressing affection for them. This term appears here. And actually in the original language, the word has that implication also. The word little children. It's used in that kind of affectionate way. Here in John 13, 33, and seven times in 1 John, this word occurs. Once here and seven times in 1 John, it does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament. This is where this word occurs. And in 1 John, John the Apostle learned the beloved disciple of Christ. He learned to address his own disciples that way in the letter of 1 John, and he addressed them as little children because he had a fond affection for their faith and their development, their growth in Christ. In the same way here, Jesus is being tender to them because they are about to hear something that's going to very much trouble them. We do know that it did trouble them, and they were curious because in 36 to 38, Peter speaks up, and in chapter 14, 1 to 6, Thomas speaks up, and they are perplexed, where are you going? Both of them essentially ask, we don't know what you're talking about, make it more clear to us, because we want to follow you wherever you go. So make it clear to us what you're talking about. Peter first in 36 to 38, and then Thomas in 14, 1 to 6, they are troubled, even though he just spoke of the glory of God and then love toward one another, they are troubled by verse 33. Jesus' statements here in verse 33 immediately troubles them. They are perplexed and curious. What is it that you're talking about? We want clarity. So what would trouble them? I am with you a little while longer. A little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Which he said earlier. Now I say to you also. A little while longer. Verse 32. Immediately. Verse 31, now. He's speaking of within a day or two, he's going to be arrested and crucified. So between his crucifixion and resurrection, they will seek for him or they will want to be with him, but they can't. They will want to, but they can't. He means it differently than the way he meant it to the Jews. When Jesus earlier said to the Jews, he was saying it earlier to the Jews in a permanent, eternal sense. Because they had wicked unbelief in their heart, they refused to believe in him, he meant it in the eternal sense. But here, he does not mean it in the eternal sense, not to the eleven, he doesn't mean it that way. He clarifies in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. You can't follow me now, but you shall follow later. Certainty with that. Not uncertainty. You shall follow later. 
You're not going to be able to ascend with me to heaven now, but you will come to heaven and meet me there later. Which is not only true of Peter, it's true of all of us. That we do not follow Christ now on the earth and everything he did on the earth now, but later we will be with him and forever. That's what he meant. Now this distinction, we see here clearly that that's what he means here with Peter, right? He clearly says so. This distinction and this point is made in chapter 14, 1 to 6 with Thomas. 14.1 Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. Um, I, sorry, let me read th- verse 3 again. Um, and I go... And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ teaches them not to be troubled, to believe in God and in him, that he has Many dwelling places, he will come again to receive them to those dwelling places and tells them, you know the way where I'm going. I've already taught you, so you should not be confused. But Thomas is confused and asks him, how do we know the way? We do not know the way. Jesus reminds him, I am the way. If you want to come to the Father, I am the way. So, These disciples will be able to come later. But who is not able to come later? Who is not able to come? If we believe, we are able to come with these 11 disciples. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. 7, 33 to 34. John seven thirty three to 34. Jesus says to his enemies, 733, Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me, and you shall not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Which he repeats in verse 36, or they repeat his statement, 36, what is the statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Where is it? He says, I go to him who sent me. Where is that place? John 8. John 8, 21. John 8, 21 to 22. We could actually read to 24, 21 to 24. 8, 21. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away and you shall seek me and you shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Therefore, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You 
are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. He's going to heaven. They don't understand that he is going to heaven after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. They don't understand this because they don't believe that he is who he claims to be, that I am he. They don't believe, so they will not go. They will not go to heaven. We will, but if we don't believe in him, we won't go. There's a difference in this expression. Now, it's likely that Jesus said it this way in verse 33 to provoke his disciples to ask and to make this distinction. We might wonder, why did Jesus say it in 33 exactly the way he said it in chapters 7 and 8 when he said it to the unbelievers? Why did he say it that way? I think he said it that way to jolt them, to shock them so that they would be curious to know. And then he clarifies what he means in 8 or, or in 13:36 to 14:6. He clarifies what he means because he wanted them to pursue this matter, and they do, just as he had intended. So if Christ is going away, and eventually ascend into heaven, and we don't see him, what are we supposed to do? What were the disciples, the apostles supposed to do, and all who followed the apostolic teaching supposed to do? Meantime. What does God require of us? Meantime. Verses 34 to 35. Love one another. Right now, it is our duty to love one another. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In 34, first we notice he calls it a new commandment. He calls it a new commandment, even though it wasn't a new commandment, if we're talking about the need to love one another. The need or the obligation to love one another was not a new commandment. First, let's establish that fact. He calls it a new commandment, and we'll explain why it is new. But in itself, to love one another was not a new commandment. How do we know that? Let's go to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. 19, 17, and 18. 19, 17, and 18. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In 1918, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know that this is the second greatest 
commandments. From Matthew 22, 34 to 40, Christ explained that this was the second of the greatest commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. So this is way back here in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Someone might object, though, and say, but he means countrymen. He means only your own citizens, your own countrymen. It says in 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You can't hate him. Verse 18, you cannot take vengeance. You cannot bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you can hate foreigners. That's okay. Someone might say, but we can't. Because in the same chapter, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19.34, Leviticus 19.34. Let's actually read 33 and 34. 19.33. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Who is supposed to also be loved? You shall love him as yourself. In this context, in the same chapter, God clarifies to the one who might say, "Only we only love our own countrymen. We only love our own fellow citizens. We don't love foreigners. We don't love strangers. He says, no. The stranger and aliens among us, you shall love him as yourself. The same applies there. So in this sense, this commandment was not a new commandment, entirely new commandment. But there was a newness to it. And this is what is new. In John 13, 34, the new aspect is, even as I have loved you, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. We should love one another as Christ loved us. We now have a very evident, vivid manifestation of the love that we should have toward one another because we have it displayed, we have it exemplified in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to the earth. He ministered among us. The record of His ministry is right here in our hands in the New Testament, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know how He taught to love one another. We see how He did it. We see how He did it in John 13, how He humbled Himself by washing the feet of His own disciples. Correct? We see Him exemplifying, demonstrating His love here during His life. And He even showed it by dying for us. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In that sense, we have God Himself descending to come upon the earth and living the life of a slave, living the life of a commoner, and then suffering unjustly, shamefully suffering 
and then dying on our behalf. Jesus of Nazareth died on our behalf in that way. He loved us in that way. So our dedication to one another should be like that. We know it's self-evident that parents, especially men in the family, should be putting their life on the line for the rest of the family, correct? In a physical sense. They should be doing that. It's self-evident that men should protect women, correct? And soldiers should protect the citizens. That's the way it works. But all the more, in a spiritual sense, we should protect one another by loving one another the way the Bible describes true love for one another. Not the way the world explains love, but the way Holy Scripture dis- uh, explains love and displays love. That's the way we should love one another. And when we do it, especially as Christ loved us, we are following this new commandment. It's a new commandment in that sense. More examples or more reiterations of this. First in John, the book of John, the new commandment to love one another as Christ loved us. John 15, John 15, 9 to 13. John 15, 9 to 13. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The love that the Father has had for the Son, the Son displays it toward us. And then he says in 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If we abide in Christ in the loving sense, then we are going to keep the the commandments of Christ, just as Christ kept the commandments of the Father. Christ obeyed the Father, we should obey Christ. And if we obey Christ, we obey the Father. And what is the commandment? In summary, verse 12, love one another. This is my commandment. Love one another, how? Just as I have loved you. And that love includes his death, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And even 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That is the kind of, of love he displayed. Love for one another. And also 17, 15, 17. This I command you, that you love one another. 1 John. 1 John is actually a brief exposition of the teaching of Christ from the book of John. 1 John is a brief explanation of the teaching of Christ in the book of John. 1 John, 
We'll see some verses here, starting in chapter 2. 1 John 2, 7 to 11. 1 John 2, 7 to 11. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In 7, he says, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment. Why is it an old commandment? Because of Leviticus 19.18 and 19.34. It's an old commandment because God always expected it. God expected Cain to love Abel. We'll see that in a moment from 1 John 3. This commandment is an old commandment to love one another. But it is new. He says in verse 8, On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you. Why? Which is true in him. Who is the him? Christ. Which is true in him. Because Christ displayed it, even displayed it to the point of his own death on behalf of his friends, his children, his beloved, his people, the church. He displayed it that way. So then, if we belong to Christ, we will not hate our brothers, we will love our brothers and walk in the light and obey the commandments of Christ. That is the light. 15 to 17, 1 John 2. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. We're supposed to love one another. If we have the love of the Father, we will love one another. Verse 15. However, in contrast, we are not to love the world, nor the things in the world. We should not love the world, nor the things in the world. Why? The world is passing away, and also its lusts. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, not from the Father, but is from the world. Those pass away, doing the will of God, obeying the commandments of Christ, abides forever. 17. Chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. In verse 1, he reminds us of the love of the Father. 3.1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. The Father has displayed a great love toward us that we should be called His children. Now, if we are His children, how does it look? How are we supposed to love each other? Verse 10. Verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. For whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Also, verse 23. Verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. How are we going to know the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil? Whether we practice righteousness and whether we love our brother. Righteousness and love toward our brother means we belong to God. The opposite means we belong to Satan, the devil. This is an old message to love one another, verse 11. It's as old as Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain did not practice this and murdered his own brother. Who is more important, one's own brother or one's spiritual brother in terms of the gospel and eternal life? If the blood brother doesn't believe, but some other one spiritually who is your brother, he believes, who is more important? Your spiritual brother, correct? He illustrates here that Cain murdered his own brother Abel. All the more, we should not hate and murder one another. We should not hate and despise one another. The world might hate us, but we should not hate each other. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. We cannot be deathly people, fatal people. If we are that way, we have no eternal life, verse 15. No eternal life. Further, he illustrates in 16 to 18. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is the way of John 13. This is what he said in John 15, correct? That he laid down his life for us. We ought to do that for one another, our spiritual brothers. But who will actually lay down his life for his spiritual brother? If he won't do verse 17, he's not going to do verse 16. And what is verse 17? You have some of the world's goods, and you see your brother is in need. He's talking about brothers in the church. You see your brother in need in the church, and you close your heart against him. 
How does the love of God abide in him? Someone has a physical need in the church and we don't help them with their physical need. How do we have God's love? If we won't help them with their little physical need, certainly we're never going to die for them. We're never going to die for them. Correct? What if they what if the government or a false religion chases us? What if they come knocking on our door? What if they ask? What if they ask, do you have any Jews in here? What if they ask, do you have any black people in here? What if they ask, do you have any white people in here? And let's let's suppose someone like me, I'm at the door. I'm brown. If I'm at the door and they ask if there's a Jew in here, and let's say there's a Jew in our church who's who's now a believer in Christ, or even not a believer in Christ, or if there's a black man in our church, or a white man in our church, and somebody comes to the door and asks me those questions. Do you have a Jew? Do you have a black man? Do you have a white man? Because we're here to arrest them and to take them away to death camps. What am I supposed to do? What am, I, am I going to lay down my life? Am I going to say and do what I need to do to protect them? He's telling me to do it. But if in the meantime, I haven't even helped them with their meager little physical needs... I'm never going to put my life on the line for them. John's teaching us this here. Verse 18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Don't pretend with your mouth, he says. Show it in your actions. Show it now by loving each other and even to death. Love one another. Chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21 are relevant for this, but we pick it up at verse 19. 419. 419. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. Not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We show our love for God by loving our brother. We cannot claim to love God when we hate our brother. When that contradiction is there, then hypocrisy is there, and no hypocrite goes to heaven. Matthew 23, Jesus denounced the hypocrites in Matthew 23 and told them and even taunted them that they would not escape the sentence of hell. Matthew 23, 33. He told them and taunted them that they would not escape the sentence of hell. The hypocrites. We can't be a hypocrite. If we love God, we ought to show it by loving our brother. Now, verse 35, 1335, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's speaking of our love for one another in the church. He's not speaking of us loving the world or loving the people of the world. We ought not to love the world nor the things in the world. There is a sense in which we ought to love the people of the world generally, we, we don't go around stealing their possessions. We don't go around lying to, 
to them or lying about them. We don't go about doing wrong to the people of the world. In that way, we love them. But the love he has in mind here is love for one another. And when we love one another, the people of the world will know we belong to Christ. If we love one another, the people of the world will know we are Christians. We are different. We are unique. We are belonging to Him. Now, it may not cause their conversion, but it will cause them to know who we are. It may or may not cause their conversion, but it will make them know who we are. Matthew 5.13 Matthew 5.13 You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel or a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are salt and we are light. The goal is when people notice who we are, they may glorify God who is in heaven. The glory of God because we are behaving as Christians ought to behave. Moreover, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, they were going to court against one another. They were pursuing lawsuits against one another, and he condemns them for that. He tells them, you should not be doing it. No Christian should take another Christian to court. He says that this is born of arrogance. So, verse 4. We pick it up at verse 4. 1 Corinthians 6, 4. If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to, to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud and that your brethren... Why are you doing this against each other before unbelievers? The unbelievers are not going to praise you. They're not going to glorify God when they see this. So you should have love for each other and not hate and lawsuits against each other. And Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. 2, 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the faithful, uh, 
holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. When we live without grumbling and disputing, when we are blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, where we appear as lights, holding fast the word of life, then the world will know. They will know who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. This is the goal. To love one another that the world may know we are Christians. If there is no distinction between the way we behave and the way the world behaves, then what's the point? What's the point of the gospel of grace? If the grace of God doesn't change us, then what's the point? If there is no distinction between the righteous and the wicked, what is the point? But there is a point. And the way to establish that distinction is to love one another, as the Bible teaches us, as mirrored, as seen in the work of Christ. So let's glorify God and love one another by preaching the cross and doing acts of love performing acts of love toward one another. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.